Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This year is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the symbolic end to the Cold War that had divided Germany and its capital city into East and West and divided much of the world. Two years prior to that, in 1987, U.S. President Ronald Reagan delivered this famous line at the Brandenburg Gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That line joined a pantheon of lines in other famous presidential speeches, a date which will live in infamy. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The architect of the famous Tear Down This Wall speech was Peter Robinson. First hired as a speechwriter by then-Vice President George H.W. Bush, he was then a speechwriter for President Reagan. Robinson will be at the National Churchill Museum at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri this Thursday. There, he'll deliver a speech and participate in a wreath-laying ceremony. The museum has the largest section of the Berlin Wall outside of Germany. It's now a sculpture called Breakthrough. Peter Robinson, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So let's revisit that famous speech. What was your directive going into it? I had a pretty simple directive. Here's where the president is going to stand He's going to have an audience of between 10 and 40,000 people. He should speak for half an hour. And given that we're placing him right in front of the Berlin Wall, he should talk about foreign policy. Hmm. That's it. That's That's it. That's what I got. That's it. They certainly weren't micromanaging you. No, no. That was typical. And the rate, this varies from one White House to another, how how much direction the speechwriters receive from senior staff before they start working. In the Reagan White House, uh, it was... We, we seldom received much direction at all. It was up to the speechwriters to think through. This isn't quite as crazy as it may sound. Mm-hmm. It may sound as though the speechwriters were permitted to write whatever they want. That's not so. You were, it was up to us to know the president so well <clears throat> that we were writing for him and thinking through what he would have wanted to say if he had had the time to do the research and think things through and go through draft after draft the way we speechwriters were supposed to do. Hmm. So it's, it's very little guidance, but the implicit guidance was give Ronald Reagan something that's worthy of his own earlier work. So how did you come up with that famous line? Talk about something that's worthy. I mean, it's so dramatic. Uh, was that right there in the first draft of the speech? It was. It was. <laughs> That, that speech went through several drafts, but the, 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 how did I come up with I came up with it. It was suggested, inadvertently suggested, by a German woman about what would it, this president delivered the speech in June. In April, I flew to Berlin with a pre-advance party. So there were some <clears throat> White House press officials who were going to be dealing with the Berlin press, some security people who would be dealing with West Berlin security, and me to spend some time in Berlin and gather material. And for the most part, I had a bad day in Berlin. I went to the place where the president would speak, and it's very, very hard to convey, now that the wall has been gone for a good long time, what it was like to stand on that observation platform and look east into the communist world, Mm -hmm. where it looked as though the color had just been drained from a photograph, gray, very few pedestrians. I saw only one or two cars, soldiers marching back and forth. And then you turn in the other direction and look into West Berlin, color, activity, prosperity. And to stand in that one spot and see that difference so starkly 
I just thought, what can I possibly write that will be equal to this place? Hmm. Uh, I saw, I had a conversation with a ranking American diplomat in Berlin, and he was worse than no help. He was full of ideas about what the president shouldn't say. <laughs> no commie bashing. Please be sophisticated here. Don't make a big deal out of the wall. They've all gotten used to it. And then in the evening, I broke away from the American party, got in a taxi, and went to a residential suburb of West Berlin where some West Berliners had agreed to put on a dinner party for me. I had never met anyone there, including the host and hostess, but the host and hostess and I had a mutual friend back in Washington who had arranged this. So there were 12 or 15 people there, different walks of life, physician, a couple of students, homemaker. Um, the host was a retired banker. He'd been at the World Bank in Washington, which is how we he had met our mutual friend. And I, <clears throat> we talked for a little bit, and then I simply said, you know, I've been told that you've gotten used to the wall. Is that so? <laughs> and and uh, it was not so. They had stopped talking about it after almost a quarter of a century of having living in the shadow of the wall, but they hadn't gotten used to it. One man pointed off in a particular direction and said, my sister lives just a few kilometers in that direction, but I haven't seen her in more than 20 years. How do you think we feel about this wall? And they went around the room, and each person told a story that displayed how much he hated the wall. And our hostess, Ingeborg Eltz, charming lady, she just died a couple of years ago. We stayed in touch through all these years. But she became angry, and she said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with this talk, glasnost, perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. Hmm. And that was what went into my notebook. I knew the moment she said that, that if Ronald Reagan had been there, he would have responded to that, the power and the decency of that remark. So that was where the inspiration, I, I, I sort of like this in a certain sense all these years later, that the inspiration for tearing down the Berlin Wall came from a German herself. Obviously, these were some very strong words coming from the president. What kind of opposition did you get from inside the administration uh, once people saw this draft? The, the National Security Council and the State Department, including the diplomat in Berlin, all objected to the speech. Uh, so uh, others objected to it as well. Howard Baker, former Senator Howard Baker, was then the chief of staff. He and I talked about it years afterwards, and Howard Baker said it just didn't sound right to him. It sounded unpresidential. So the arguments were that it would raise false expectations. The wall was going to be there for who knew how long. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about tearing something down when it couldn't be torn down. And the State Department in particular was concerned that by addressing Gorbachev, by challenging Gorbachev personally, the speech would put him on the spot in Moscow itself, in his own Politburo. They'd say, ha, you see? You see with the Americans, the Americans are fingering you personally. They're trying to embarrass us in front of the world. Those were the, that was the, the, the range of objections to the speech. And um, I, I didn't buy it. I was 30 years old, just had just turned 30 and didn't, I guess in some sense I didn't know, but I look back on it and said, what was I thinking? Yeah, you had some hubris there. I, I did, I, I did, but I, and, and I also had Ronald Reagan on my side. It turned out in the end, <clears throat> this fight went on for something like three weeks three weeks from the time the president looked at the speech and then it went out to staffing for all three weeks that the, the State Department and the NSC opposed it and submitted one draft after another, a different pretext, but from each of their drafts, the call to tear down the wall was missing. And finally, um, I did not go, I was not part of the traveling party in Europe, but 
Ken Duberstein, then the deputy chief of staff, told me about this afterwards, that he decided he had to take the speech back to the president for a second decision. Not a good thing to do if you're trying to run the staff. You, you want to act on one decision. But this fight just wouldn't die down. So he took it back to the president. And Ken told me he sat him down. They were staying at some Italian palazzo. They were in Italy before going to Berlin. And he went through with the president. He talked over the objections to the speech. And he had the president read that central passage over. Then they discussed it for a moment or two. And then Ken said, the, pre- <laughs> the president said, now, Ken, I'm the president, aren't I? Yes, sir. Clear about that much. So I get to decide whether that line stays in. Yes, it's your decision. Well, then it stays in. <laughs> and that was Ronald Reagan. We're talking to Peter Robinson. He was the speechwriter of the famous tear down this wall speech that President Reagan gave in Berlin. Peter Robinson, so often we only remember a single line from famous speeches. What else in this speech that Reagan <laughs> delivered um, is worth remembering today? There, I'm, I have to say, I, I spent six years in the Reagan White House, and I wrote tens of thousands of words. And nobody remembers anything except six of them. <laughs> and, one of the, and one of those words is Mr. <laughs> so he began the speech by contrasting the post-war experience in the communist East and the democratic West, and talked in particular about the economic growth of West Germany and West Berlin, which, which was visible to him, to everyone who was there, and by contrast with the economic stagnation in East Berlin, Eastern Europe, and of course the Soviet Union itself. And I'd like to think he got off a few good lines, but that was a tremendously important point because, say, right through the 1970s, when the Soviet Union was still expanding its navy and the United States was going through stagnation and one crisis after another. By now, by 1987, the United States, West Germany, Britain under Margaret Thatcher, West Germany under Kohl, had returned to market economics and were, they were, there was buoyancy. The West was growing again. And th- so this notion through the 70s, you might even have said, well, Marx seems to have been right. The West does seem to be in decline. But by the 1980s, You couldn't make that argument. On the contrary, the president made exactly the opposite argument, which wasn't just theoretical. In Berlin, you could see it. Freedom worked. Democracy worked. And central planning and communism just didn't. That was a tremendously, I thought that that was an important part of the speech because it laid the predicate for calling for the tearing down the wall. Mm -hmm. Um, and And then at the end of the speech, this is something... This doesn't get replayed because it's, it's religious, actually. He, and I can't imagine anybody else pulling off the delivery than Ronald Reagan. But I learned when I was in Berlin, it's still there. There's a kind of tall communications tower in East Berlin that's topped by a big glass sphere. And they, I was told by several people that when the sun struck it just right, the reflection made a kind of sign of the cross. And the communists couldn't stand that. So for years, they've been trying to paint it and treat it with different chemicals, different paints, so that it wouldn't have that reflection. And I I thought, well, that that must be an urban legend. So I got back to the White House and asked the researchers to check into it. And lo and behold, it was completely true. And so I had the president talk about, in the ending of the speech, 
I had the president talk. This is the sort of thing he would have loved to talk about and, and mm-hmm. did enjoy. Um, that life in West Berlin, surrounded by the communist East, was a kind of act of faith. Hmm. But it was the kind of faith, freedom, goodness of humanity, the belief in, ultimately in God that would break through, even as, and the amazing thing is, that as he talked about the tower and the sun making the sign of the cross and the communists trying to obscure that reflection for all these years, I swear to you, Sarah, it's true. It had been a cloudy day, but as he talked about that tower making the sign of the cross, the clouds rolled back, <laughs> and there, high above East Berlin, you could see the reflection. It actually did make the sign of the cross. Now, I leave that to you, Sarah, <laughs> to dwell upon whether God was on Ronald Reagan's side. I'd like to think so. But in any event, <laughs> it was the kind of passage that would be very hard to write today, and even in that time, couldn't have been brought off by anybody other than Ronald Reagan. Talking about faith and religion is very difficult, but he pulled it, I feel, he pulled it off. Um, You know, the famous companion speech to the Tear Down This Wall speech was given about 40 years before in Fulton, Missouri, and that was the Iron Curtain speech delivered by former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Was that on your mind when you wrote this particular speech for Reagan? Oh, there were two speeches on my mind when I wrote this speech for President Reagan. One was, of course, Winston Churchill at Fulton, just as you say. And the other is John Kennedy in 62, 61, I can't remember which year, but he went to Berlin, West Berlin, just after the wall had gone up, and his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech. And I thought to myself, those were in my mind, and here's why they were in my mind. I wanted to avoid giving the president any material that would prompt comparisons between him and John Kennedy or him, Winston Churchill, anyone from the early period of the Cold War, because times were so different and emotions were so much higher uh, that I I just thought it would be unfair. We lived, I felt, in a more prosaic time. Little did I know that just over two years later, the wall would come down. (laughs) But I wanted to, I wanted, Reagan had a different, softer register from either Winston Churchill, certainly from John Kennedy. With John Kennedy, if you look at the newsreels, there were 100,000 people and maybe more <clears throat> jammed into the square where he spoke. And you can it's just electric. And this was many, many years later, and the Cold War had by then settled into certain patterns. I just didn't think the air was going to be electric the way it was for John Kennedy. Um, In the end, I think Ronald Reagan made it, created some of his own electricity with that line. But good question, well spotted, and the answer is I wanted to avoid any such comparison. You didn't want to be anything like Churchill. That's that's an answer one doesn't hear very often from (laughs) speechwriters. That was exactly right, because as a speechwriter, you read Churchill and say, "Oh, but this is just marvelous stuff." And then, in fact, a few of us we did. There was one. We had a little bit of a contest. We wrote a few paragraphs as Churchill would have written them, so we thought. And for Ronald Reagan, they were just all wrong. Hmm. There's a big, big difference of, between the kind of Ciceronian formal uh, uh, approach of an English aristocrat as opposed to Ronald Reagan, who was an American from the Midwest whose style was relaxed and conversational and homey. Just all wrong. 
<laughs> now, now switching here to the modern time, um, you wrote a book with some criticisms of the Republican Party. It's called It's My Party, A Republican's Messy Love Affair with the GOP. And Publishers Weekly noted, Robinson suggests that narrowing the gender gap is going to make is going to require making appeals to the concerns of women and that this is not all bad. Instead of taking an unyieldingly tough line on social issues, showing a little heart would do the party good. These seem like very familiar criticisms. And that's why it's so surprising. You wrote this book in the year 2000. This was almost two, two decades before Trump. So I found myself wondering, what do you think about the current state of the GOP? Ah, oh, Sarah, you would ask. Couldn't we go back to, to 30 and 33, <laughs> 34 years ago again, please? I feel so much more comfortable. I, I think there's, there's a lot of, of Reagan lovers who might feel the same way. <laughs> well, here's why. It's vexed. It's, it's a vexed question. Donald Trump, here's what it comes down to. Eh, maybe this, is, maybe this, isn't what, if this isn't what it comes down to. This is just another way of looking at it. With Ronald Reagan, even his enemies liked the guy. Tip O'Neill was a bitter political enemy of Ronald Reagan's. And, but he, O'Neill, Tip O'Neill visited him in the hospital. They, they, they couldn't resist liking each other. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump, heaven help us, is the other way around. You sometimes get the feeling that even his best friends, whoever they may be, find him hard to take. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and, and Ronald Reagan was, Ronald Reagan gave beautiful speeches. He cared a great deal about speeches. Donald Trump's Speechwriters, I've met a couple of them. They're very talented people. He's given about half a dozen just beautifully written speeches, but they don't bear the same relationship to the person of Donald Trump that Reagan's speeches bore to him. Reagan always took the speeches seriously. He edited them. By the time he gave them, there was no gap between him and his text. And yet you hear Donald Trump give a speech, and you say, you say to yourself, understandably so, eh, the real Donald Trump is what he tweets, mm-hmm. not his speeches. Do you see any up-and-comers today who remind you of Reagan, who have some of these gifts that you've been talking about today? Oh, sure. Uh, Ted Cruz is as fast on his feet as Reagan. Marco Rubio gives speeches that are as moving as Ronald Reagan's. Um, your, your own Josh Hawley. I think jo- what, what's, what strikes me about Josh Hawley is that that same kind of moral imagination that Josh Hawley, I have to say, I've been just astounded because he's only been in the Senate for, what, 18 months or so now. By the way, I have to, I know him slightly from one the time, this is how long I've been working at Stanford, Sarah. I knew Josh when he was an undergraduate here at Stanford University. Oh, so wow. Yes. So he's, he's been on your radar for a while here now. He's been on radar for a long time, and I have to say I'm very fond of him. But that young senator has been immensely imaginative in policy terms, um, carving out a place for himself in the Senate and also advancing the policy agenda, privacy, He's standing up to big tech in ways that, as far as I can tell, nobody else in the Senate is doing. He's really adding something. He's a distinctive voice. He's working out a program or a policy or an approach of his own, which is what Ronald Reagan did when he was governor of California out here, out in the West. He, He had a different, he ended up when he became a national figure, he'd spent years outside the East, outside Washington, D.C., developing his own approach, his own way of thinking. Josh Hawley reminds me of, of those earlier years of Ronald Reagan. 
Peter Robinson, former speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan, will be at the National Churchill Museum at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, this Thursday afternoon. He'll attend a commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Robinson is also a policy fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He was the architect of Reagan's famous Tear Down This Wall speech delivered at the Brandenburg Gate in 1987. He joined us via Skype. More information about the event is on our website. Peter Robinson, thank you for joining us. Sarah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.